The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. In Psalm 119. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Let's pray. Holy, holy, holy God. You have made us here, placed us on this earth as sojourners passing through. Flowers quickly fading. What we need here most these days of travel is your word. Because your word connects us to you. God, I pray, teach us. Do not be far off. Do not hide yourself. Do not let us move along in a daze. Awaken us. Stir us to see and to understand Your Word. Teach. Give us grace that we can hear. Be changed by it. That is our need. That is the need of Your people. Graciously, You meet that need again and again and again. And I thank You for that. And I pray, would You do it this morning? Would You take these minutes that we have, would You take them Reveal Yourself to us in them. Give power to Your Word, Lord, here in this place, in all the houses of worship where Your people gather and lift up Christ, call Him Lord and God and submit to Him. Lord, make Him known within us. Conform us to Him. Holy Spirit, carry out your ministry here in our midst, I pray. Teach us, guide us. Make Jesus known. We pray this to his honor and for our benefit. Amen. One of my favorite movies is Chevy Chase's Christmas Vacation. If you know that movie or not. It's not the perfect movie. There are some things in there that I can't recommend, but overall it's a pretty funny movie. And there's one scene in that movie where the main character, Clark Griswold, goes a little overboard with the Christmas decorations. And he covers the house in 25,000 imported Italian twinkle lights. And when he goes to turn them on for the first time, though, Nothing happens. So picture the scene. There's Clark and his family, then several sets of extended family, all standing out in the front yard in their pajamas in the snow at night looking at a dark house. And Clark's getting a little upset that nothing's happened. And Clark's dad comes up to him and says, Son, it's probably just a bad bulb. You know, if one bulb goes out, the whole thing's shot. If I were you, I'd check every single one of those bulbs. And if you need any help, I'll be upstairs in bed asleep. 
I'm with you on this one. Good luck. And that's the extent of my assistance in this massive endeavor. You know, here now in our lives, we face a massive endeavor. We are to call the world to Christ. Think about it. There are a million people in this valley who don't know Christ. And this is just a small little place. Across the globe, billions of people. And we're supposed to call them to Christ. And we ourselves who have come to Christ, we are to be conformed more and more to his image. Have you thought about that? That's a massive endeavor. And has God basically said to us, you know, I'm with you on this one. Good luck. If you need any help, I'll be upstairs, way upstairs, in bed, asleep. Is, is that his word to us? No. Thankfully, no. He's, he said more than that. That's what we're going to be looking at today in the book of John. It, the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Here, again. What he does out there in the world as he bears witness about Jesus and what he does in here within us as he bears witness about Jesus to us in a slightly different way. In the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God gives a different answer to us than, good luck, I'm with you. He gives us actual real help. One constant theme throughout this whole section of the book of John has been the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Within us and with us as we go out to witness. Within us and with us as we struggle to understand what God teaches and then to grow in holiness. We've looked at this before already. God has a plan that he's been carrying out and he sent, God the Father sent God the Son to the earth to carry out his plan. To come down to earth in a body to be a sacrifice, to rise back again to the place of honor and glory that has always rightfully been his. And he has to walk that whole path, humbled and obedient and suffering, a sacrifice, and then raised and honored. But the trick is that the last part of that, the, the rising up, takes him away from here. He leaves. That's where he is. He's right at that point here in the book of John. And while the disciples, by a long shot, don't get everything, they are starting to get that. He's leaving. And as they come to grips with that, they are continually filled with sorrow. They're kind of in a mourning state. Jesus is leaving us. And he's leaving us to this hostile world, and we're supposed to call him to Christ? That's not good. And they're struggling with that. And so Jesus speaks to that sorrowful, grieving attitude, again offering the hope and the promise of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What today's passage is about. Let me read it, and then we'll move into it. This is beginning in John 16, in the middle of verse 4, down through 15. John 16, 4. I did not say these things to you from the beginning, because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. 
concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will speak not on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Fix this light right here. As the passage begins, Jesus says, I didn't say these things to you at first. Which things is he talking about? The things that we looked at last week. How Jesus is leaving them amidst a hostile world and how they are to go out into that world, to leave the holy huddle and go out into that world and make Jesus an issue out there and how that's not going to go very well. They're going to be met with a lot of hostility and he hadn't mentioned that to them or hadn't elaborated on it yet because he was still with them, able to deflect the hostility and the criticism, able to encourage them amidst some of the difficult things they had encountered. But now it's about to change, and he tells them he's leaving, and then he says, but nobody asks me, where am I going? And on the surface, that seems a little strange, because didn't Peter ask exactly that back in chapter 13? He did, word for word. And, and didn't Thomas ask nearly the same thing in chapter 14? So what does Jesus mean here? I think it's helpful to note that the grammar in verse 5 indicates none of you continually ask me. There's not a continual asking of where are you going. Not in the sense of where are you going, where are you going, where are you going. That would be kind of odd. But in a sense of pressing on into it and exploring the question and the answer that he gave them in chapter 14. I'm going to the Father to prepare eternity for you. That's how he answered that. We don't get very many of their words here in this passage, but we do get Jesus' assessment of their heart attitude. And evidently, he understands that they're not drilling down into this like they should be. He said, I'm leaving, I'm going to the Father, and they should be asking, what's that like? When will you come back? What's the presence of God really like? What will we do there? They should be pressing into that, but they're not. Two-part statement, I'm leaving and going to the Father, and they're stuck on this part. He's leaving. They're not focusing on this part. It seems to be what Jesus is getting at here. And because they're focusing on this part, they're filled with grief. They're filled with sorrow. He's leaving us alone with these people. That can't be good. But Jesus responds, actually, it is good. It's to your advantage that I go away. Why? Verse 7. When I go, the Helper, it's God the Holy Spirit there, the Helper will come to you. Now, of course, in one sense, God the Holy Spirit has always been here. He's God. There is no place where God is not. So the Spirit has always been here. And if you look back to the Old Testament, you'll see in the times and places described there, the Spirit's present. From the very beginning, He's present and involved with the creation of all things. And you move through there, you see him involved in different ways, anointing kings, perhaps, or giving uh, unique power to people in certain situations. And if you think about it, he's even involved in salvation. People back then are just the same as people now. Dead in sin, fallen natures. We've always been the same. We need God to bring us to life. He's still been involved in the work of salvation back then. But to use a metaphor that is often used in the Old Testament, one of comparing the Holy Spirit to water, to flowing water, 
Back then, the Spirit's ministry is like a trickle, like a little bitty stream flowing barely. A few people he's working in, in one location, very small. But what Jesus is alluding to and what the prophets foretold and promised was that a time was coming when this trickle would come in torrents. It would be poured out to the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He would come in a vast way. What's a stream would become an overflowing flooded river that would run through not just one place but through all the nations. We call it Pentecost when that would happen. Jesus is pointing forward to that for these 11 disciples. He's alluding to that here. A new, powerful work of the Spirit, His coming. Well, how is that an advantage to us? Well, it's an advantage in a bunch of different ways. But specifically, this text grabs onto just one portion of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And all the rest of the verses are going to elaborate on that. Here's the main point of this passage this aspect of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit makes the truth clear. The Holy Spirit makes the truth clear in the world, two realms, in the world and in the Christian. He comes, and when He comes, He does what we cannot do. He engages fallen people, sinful people, the world. He engages them effectively at the heart level engages them there to make truth about itself clear to it. Clear in a way that is compelling and gripping. So trust Him when you go out there and interact with the world. The Spirit goes with you and does something that you with your words cannot do. He engages at the heart and makes the truth clear. And He does the same sort of thing within us. He engages the Christian at the heart level and makes the truth clear to us. The Spirit makes the truth clear to the world and to the Christian, so we should trust Him to do that. I can emphasize both those words. Trust Him and trust Him. He's the one who does that out there in the world. He's the one who does that here in our hearts. Those two realms. That's how the passage breaks down, describing first His work in the world and then His work with with believers. So that's how I'm going to approach the passage here. Let me move immediately to the first realm here, the realm of what he does in the world. If I put this in a sentence, I'd put it like this. The Spirit convicts, we're going to see that word here in a minute, the Spirit convicts in order to save a person through Christ. That's the nature of him, his making the truth known to the world. He's going to convict in order to save he brings about necessary conviction within the realm of the world. And if you're a Christian, remember what we mean by the world here, what John means by world. If you're a Christian, you used to be a part of the world before God chose you out of it. Saw that a couple weeks ago. The world is this, this realm of fallen humanity, of people who still are not trusting in Christ. So if you're a Christian, you used to be there. And if you're not yet a Christian, you still are there. So what we're looking at here is this work that God the Spirit wants to do or has already done for you in your heart, within you. He's going to say, he's going to prove, you think you're like this, but really you're like this. Verse 8, he convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. To convict, it's a legal term. 
picture in your mind, we have, we have a courtroom setting here. He comes, he holds court within the individual, within the, the particular person, within a man, within a woman, in, her, in his, his or her heart. He holds court there and prosecutes a case against the non-Christian. Brings in evidence, presses his arguments, and proves decisive so that the verdict is not acquittal, but condemnation, conviction. It's a legal setting. And he convicts concerning three things. Verses 9, 10, 11, elaborate on them. Notice the three parallel statements in those verses. He convicts concerning and lists out three things. You get the flavor of what that convict concerning phrase means. I think it's best to look at at chapter 8, verse 46. You can jot that down there where Jesus uses the same language in a question and says, can any of you convict me concerning sin? That's what he literally says. Can you convict me concerning sin? Can you prove me guilty of sin? And obviously back there they could not, but right here the point is the Spirit does exactly that in the world. And he must do it supernaturally, spiritually within because, continuing on the verse, because they do not believe in me. Now, notice carefully, the don't believe in Jesus part is not the sin that he's convicting them of. Obviously, not believing in Jesus is a sin. But if you look down through the parallels in the next several verses, every time what follows after the word because is the reason for what's before the word because. He convicts them. He must convict them in their hearts that they're guilty of sin, and that is necessary because people don't believe in Jesus. Jesus told them they were guilty. Jesus himself spoke to them. For that matter, so does the written word of God. So may you. Saying to a person, as Jesus said to thousands of people, you're guilty of sin before God, and if you do not trust me personally and only, you will perish. He said that. But the world's response is, no way. I'm not that bad. He's pretty arrogant for saying he's the only way. Even he's a blasphemer for saying that he's God come in flesh. That is not true. Or if it's true that I am a sinner, well, so is everybody else. It's no big deal. The world does not believe in Jesus, and so the world does not believe Jesus' words. So, something must happen in here. That's the Spirit's work. To take those words and drive them in. He will do that here, now, to convince a person within, I am guilty. I am a sinner. And to do more than that, verse 10, he convicts in regards to their righteousness. I think that the parallel nature of these requires that we read righteousness as a negative thing. You might want to put it in quotes there. The world always has, always will have a standard of righteousness. Religious people in Jesus' day, religious people today, back in Isaiah's day, all have an idea of this is righteousness. Remember what Isaiah 64 said, their righteousness is like filthy rags. Today the standard of righteousness might be, you know, you can sleep with anybody you want as long as they're a consenting adult, or at least consenting. You know, as long as nobody really gets hurt, 
as far as I can tell, that's fine. Little white lies, small petty theft, that's okay. We have a standard of righteousness. It's righteousness by committee. And the standard is constantly changing as the committee makeup changes. What we consider righteous today in our world, 30 years ago, people would have fainted at. It's moving constantly because the world's standard of righteousness is not grounded in God. And the Spirit moves in and has to convict a person. What you call righteous, God does not call that righteous. Why does the Spirit have to do that? Because Jesus is leaving. It's the second half of the verse there. Jesus used to come into the darkness and flip on the light, and he would stand there himself and by word and deed show, this is what righteousness is. Not what you all think. This, how I act, what I say, what I do, that is righteous. But Jesus, the living, speaking example, is departing. It's not going to be here anymore. How will people become convinced then that their righteousness is faulty? By the Spirit's work in the heart, convicting It is more than that. Verse 11. Convicts the world in regards to its judgment. Jesus warned the world in chapter 7, stop judging by appearances, but judge with right judgment. It's the way of the world to judge based upon wrong standards. To judge just like their father does, who is a deceiver and a liar. Establish a certain standard of righteousness and then pass judgment in relation to that righteousness. Get it all messed up. And the Spirit says, wrong. Your Father has already been condemned. Your kingdom stands destroyed and judgment of God that is true and right will fall on you. The Spirit does that within the heart of the individual non-Christian. It's His job. 8, 9, 10, 11 make all that pretty clear. It's right on the surface there. And so far, this is pretty stern stuff. Not real friendly, not real easygoing, not light and fluffy. This is conviction, condemnation in the heart of an individual from the hand of God. You lack righteousness. You judge falsely. You sin Your kingdom is fallen. Judgment will fall on you. Nobody likes to hear that. Nobody likes to hear that. But it's the Spirit's ministry. The Spirit convicts. But, lest we get hung up in some some smug glee in that, actually, yeah, tell them what they're like. Come on, Spirit. I've been trying all my life. Why don't you tell them? We can get really carried away with that and almost be happy to convict people. Lest we get too carried away in that or misunderstand God's overall character and nature here, we have to ask this next question. Why does the Spirit convict? Why does He do that? Think about this for just a second. If the end goal is only to condemn people, he need not say anything. They're guilty. He's not confused on the issue. They're confused on the issue. The Spirit convicts so as to save people in Christ. Those two things, they have to go together. 
He could just leave people, but then he would have left all of us. I used to be a part of the world until the Spirit convicted me of my sin, of my false righteousness and false judgment. I can still remember the first week after a person shared the gospel with me, for the first time that I remember hearing it. He shared it with me. I went back to my room. And from time to time in the next week, it just kind of came back to me. I, I thought, like, I wonder if that's true. You know, if that's true, I have a huge problem that I do not have a solution to. It's not true. I'm not that bad. Certainly not as bad as that guy or that whole floor of people. I'm a pretty moral, upright guy. It's not true. And then it would come back. But what if it is, Steve? You say you're holy? What if it's true? It's not true. But what if it is? All week long, at odd, random times, it would come back to me. And I say it would come back as if it's this impersonal thing. What's going on there? The prosecuting attorney is pressing his case with me. You're not who you think you are, Steve. You're not as good as you think you are. You've got the wrong standard of them or all of them. You're judging incorrectly. He's pressing his case. He's pressing it. If it's true, what are you going to do about that? And what happens is my blind eyes are given sight. My heart comes to life. Yeah, maybe I'm, I'm a sinner becomes, oh my God, I'm a sinner. What am I going to do about that? Nothing. And then Christ seems to be the glorious Savior that I need, which He is. Conviction of sin must proceed. Any grasping of Christ. People who think they're sick go to a doctor. Jesus says that to indicate only people who think they're sick go to a doctor. The Spirit convicts and says, you're sick, go to the doctor. And here He is. Glorious. A fabulous Savior, which you need, don't you? And my heart says, yes, I do. Look at me. Some of you here still stand guilty before God. You do. He is holy and just, and you are not. May He press into you. May the attorney prosecute His case with you. You're lost. Your judgment is wrong. Your righteousness fails. You sin and are a sinner. You have to see that. May He convict you of sin and righteousness and judgment. And right behind that conviction, may He deliver to you Jesus as a glorious Savior. He only saves sinners. Are you one? Of course you are. Do you think you're one? Repent and turn to Christ. It's your only hope only hope. Most of us have here. I know that. 
I know most of you. What of this for us? Well, obviously, a thankful heart would be an appropriate response. You used to be there. Graciously, he commissioned the Spirit to convict you. So you saw your need for a Savior, trusted him, and were saved. Thank him. Respond in grace to him. But in this passage, Jesus presents this truth to his 11 believing disciples in a context. What's the context? Remember last week? The world will hate you. How many times does he use the word hate, 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 hate? Outside the house, there's a storm. In that context, he presents this truth. Why? You're supposed to go out there. It's not you fighting the battle. It's not your power that wins it. To call the world to Christ is not actually your final job. It's his job, and he will do it. You'll be talking to someone kindly and graciously, but clearly. You'll be talking to someone, and all you're going to meet is resistance or hostility or bored indifference. But then that 19-year-old college student is going to go back to his dorm and think, what if it's true? But what if it's true? But what if it's true? That will happen. The attorney will press his case with that kid, with your neighbor, with your coworker, with your family member. Not every single time, not when you would hope, but he will. Our hope is not that God will do what our bidding is when we like it. Our hope is that he will use us in the process and will execute his will in people's lives. That hope is sure. He will press his case. So go preaching and praying. God, come now to this person right here and take these words that I speak and drive them in and convict him, convict her of sin and righteousness and judgment. Pray that for people. We sometimes fall down in our, in our actual evangelistic technique when we forget or avoid talking about sin. We talk about how great of a Savior Jesus is, which is totally true, but fail to mention what people need to be saved from. The two things go together. We talk about, we preach about, we proclaim a glorious Christ, high and exalted, magnificent over all, and then we tell people how clearly and how drastically they have failed to love and worship and thank and honor Him as they should, completely and wholly. Here's what he is. You have failed to respond to him like that. We say that kindly and graciously, but clearly. And then we say, but there is a Savior to forgive that sin. We must preach both parts of that, trusting that when we preach, he prosecutes. He convicts the world. He draws people to himself. He's not out to just convict convicts so as to save people in Christ. That should be encouragement to us. We have a huge task, but we don't face it alone. When the Spirit convicts, the conviction happens. He's God. That's what his job is. He's sent to do that. And when he does that, 
The person comes to faith, and that moves us into the second realm of the Spirit's ministry here this morning. He makes a truth clear to the world, and he makes a truth clear to the believer, to the Christian, the second realm. Put this in a sentence, I'd write it like this. The Spirit instructs so as to conform us to Christ. Two parts again to that. He instructs believers, Christians, so as to conform us to Christ. It's the end goal there. We need to become more like Christ, and that happens by internal transformation of our hearts, and that happens as a result of effective instruction, spirit instruction, God illumining, God making something known to us in a way that we grasp it, that it grasps us, it moves kind of, if you will, beyond your head, down to your heart, gets a hold of you. Kind of like what happened at my last trip at the dentist. I mentioned this once before. If you recall this, you know how every time you go to the dentist, the dentist or the hygienist says, you really should floss more. And you nod your head and say, sure, I'll try harder, and then you don't. That's how I am, at least. But the last time I went, the dentist said to me, you know, your teeth look great here on the surface, above the gum line, but you know, the problem is what's going on below there. You've got a, a real problem there, and if there's, any time, you know, that's big, if there's any time to correct this, the only way to do that is by flossing. Well, somehow or another, that got across to me that time. It gripped me, and I've only missed two days of flossing since then. <laughs> one time we were out of floss so only one time voluntarily and that's not exactly what we're talking about here because me at the dentist there's nothing spiritual or supernatural going on there not exactly the same thing but the basic idea information communicated to me grabs a hold of me changes my thinking and my desiring which changes my behavior that's the basic idea. My external actions change as a result of an internal mind and heart change. Or, like Paul would put it in Romans 12, I am transformed by the renewing of my mind. And that is exactly what we're talking about here. Let's work towards that by starting at the end in verse 15. Jesus says, All that the Father has is mine. He's not talking about, like, possessions, stuff. He's talking about being, about nature, attributes. He's tying into this very common theme throughout this book of I and the Father are one. He said exactly that. The book begins, in fact, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. We've talked about this a bunch. He's tying back into that all that the Father has is mine. If you want to see God, you must see me. If you want to know God, you must know me. If you want to embrace God, you must embrace me. It has been God the Father's plan throughout all of time to draw all things together to one focal point, Christ. God wants to make himself known, to communicate himself, and he's decided to do that in God the Son. To have his final word to us in the word made flesh. That's God's plan. It's what he's doing. We have to see him. But here's the issue. He's gone. 
He's not physically here anymore. How are we going to see Jesus? All that the Father has is in Jesus. Therefore, that's why I told you that the Spirit's going to make me known to you. You need to see the Father, which is in me, so He's going to make me known to you. The Spirit will make Jesus known to me. He's not going to conjure Him up physically here. He's going to make Him known within. The Spirit will come to declare Christ, to instruct us about Him. From our perspective, He already has come. From the perspective of the text, He's yet to come. He'll come to exalt the Son in exactly the right ways, at just the right time, in just the right place in your heart. He'll lift up Christ. Like exterior illumination. Think of outside lighting. You're not supposed to look at the light. You're supposed to look at the building, say, or the statue. The Spirit does that. The Spirit's the light that shines on Christ and says, look at Him. Lifts Him up in front of our eyes, the eyes of our heart. It's a central work that He's carrying out. He's taking Christ and making Him known to us. Even the phrase in there about declare to you the things that are to come, Sounds like it's about end times thing, but remember from the perspective of the text, the things that are to come includes the cross, the resurrection, his reigning in heaven, his work in us now, right now, here in 2007, and his return. The things that are to come are all of Christ's works from that point on. That's the Spirit's job to declare them to us, to teach them. You can think of declaration kind of like a town crier. You know, the guy who would come and stand in, in the town square and call out, Hear ye, hear ye, and then declare the word of the king to the people. Well, the people stand there and they hear it. The declaration has happened. That's declaration. But if you just stop there, you're only halfway home in this point. The Spirit does not come just to declare. You have to ask the question again, why? Why does he want to do that? He wants to declare Christ so as, it's a twofold answer, so as to glorify Christ and change us, to conform us to Christ's image. See that in a couple of verses in there. He will glorify Christ taking what is Jesus and declaring it so that it is seen and more than just seen, embraced. He declares Jesus. You realize this, Satan knows a whole lot about Jesus. And in a way, Christ is glorified by that. He stands over Satan triumphant, foot on his neck, if you will. But Jesus is more glorified when he is declared, seen, and then embraced. If somebody says, you are wonderful, you are awesome, I love you, I take you to be my own, my greatest treasure, that makes Christ look all the better. It glorifies him all the more. He is glorified in that way when he is declared and embraced. And that embracing is what... I, is what I've used the word conforming to describe. You can see that in the verse there where it says, He guides them, He will guide them into all the truth. 
Now, for the 11 disciples, he's looking ahead to the time. They don't understand anything about Jesus, comparatively speaking. They don't think he's going to be crucified yet. There's a lot that they do not get. So he's going to declare things to them in the very near future, and then they're going to write them down, and we're going to learn from them. So you've got to get our right place on the timeline here. The things that are to come for them, not all are to come for us. Some have already come. Find yourself on the timeline here. He's going to guide them into some truth and guide us in the way of that truth. Conform us to it. He pictures it like a path here. He's going to sketch out the path for the disciples. They're going to write it down for us, and then we're going to walk it all by the Spirit's help. We are conformed to him. We embrace him. We are guided in his way. And Christ is glorified by that. It's the Spirit's ministry within us. Make the truth clear to us and change us by it. So what does that mean for us? Let me try to kind of sum that up. There are a lot of steps there. God the Father looks down at his people across all of time. There's an old, there's an old I think it's a Rich Mullins song. There's just a f- couple of phrases in that song that I often think about. And I was sitting out last night looking at the, the stars, and it came to me again. Where the song says, Sometimes I think of Abraham, how one star he saw had been lit for me. He was a stranger in the land. And I have that no less than he. I'm a stranger here in this land. I'm a sojourner passing through. So are you. And God looks down at his people and says, what do I need to give them as they pass through? What do they need? Well, they need some guidance. They're going to need to know how to deal with this situation and that problem. They're going to have to understand this about themselves. Yes, 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 yes. But over all of that, what they need is me. I want to make myself known to them. It's going to cast all those other things in the right perspective. When I give them certain instruction, it's instruction that reveals my character. When I tell them how to handle a certain problem, it's because I deal with it that way. Everything is in, is in contrast to or flowing out of Him. I need to give them myself. I'll do that in the Son. I'll communicate the Son to them in the Spirit. That's his agenda in your life. So think about it. Do you want more of God? Do you? The right answer is yes, but do you? Are you pretty happy with what you have? Be real. Many of us answer the question, yes, of course I want more of God. And if somehow that happens to me, while I go about doing what I'm normally doing, that'd be great. Do you really want more of God? Do you want to glorify Christ to the utmost? As much as you possibly can, do you want your life to lift Him up and exalt Him? The right answer is yes. Do you? Do you want to be the most effective witness for Him? out there in the world that you possibly can be. 
Do you? Really? Ask yourself these questions. The answer to all of them traces right back to the Spirit's work within you. Revealing Christ to you so that it grips you. That vision grips you so that you see Him more and are changed. That's the Spirit's work. It is bread and butter Christianity. Trust Him to do that. Stop chasing after all the other stuff in your life. If you want to know God more, if you want to be a a more effective witness for Him, if you want to exalt Him more, lean on the Spirit. Come to Him humbly and say, God, help. Spirit, have your way inside of me. Pray with Paul. Ephesians 1, open the eyes of my heart. Show yourself to me. Pray with Paul in Ephesians 3. God, strengthen me with power through your Spirit in my inner being so that Christ may dwell down deep inside of me. Do you hear that prayer? How does Christ dwell down deep inside of you? By the Spirit, power coming from God? It's not complicated. There's nothing new here. How many times did Dennis say floss? Nothing new there. Nothing new. Repent and turn to what you already know. Lean on, rely on, beg, Spirit, change me. Show me Christ in a way that grips me. Use me in your world. The Spirit exposes. We embrace. Pray for more light and obey. Don't just sit on the couch until it happens. Walk out after Him, obeying. Isn't that not the point of chapter 14 where again and again and again He said obey in conjunction with the Spirit? Within a Christian, the Holy Spirit's ministry is to make some things clear to you specifically to illumine Christ to you so as to conform you to His image. The Holy Spirit makes the truth clear to the world, convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, and He makes the truth about Christ clear to the Christian so as to change you within. Trust Him to do that. Run to Him. Surrender to Him. Let me pray. God, we need you to do this within us. We need you to convince us that this is important and then to do it within us. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would take a message that they know and grab them with it and take them to the scriptures where you make yourself clear. Change us by showing us more of Christ. And I pray for those here, Lord, who don't know you yet. Press in on them and convict them of sin and righteousness and judgment, I ask you.
keep bringing it back to them, convincing them, convincing them again and again that they will not stand in the judgment, but that there is a hope in Christ. Spirit, this is your job. So I pray in confidence that you will do it. You are God. You never fail. Carry out your will in our midst, I ask you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.